Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello there, my strange running friends. How are you? I'm great. Fantastic. Nothing to complain about. Full of joy and abundance, which, if I'm honest with you, takes a lot of work. (laughs) It's officially the end of summer in New England. The nights are clear and cold. The mornings are crisp like a fresh, clean blanket. The sun sets earlier and comes up later, noticeably, every day. When I was a youth in school, I would hate this time of year. School starting meant the end of a summer's long and languid lethargy. The weather would turn, but not enough to be interesting. There wouldn't be any snow to sled on or build with for weeks, and the days would be dim, short, cold, windy, rainy, and filled with work. Now, Buddy and I, in perhaps the autumn of our own times feel somehow reborn into the crispness of fall, and he roams the house wild-eyed and vocal, beseeching me to get up, get out, seize the leaf-covered forest trails, for that is where we live, if only for another year, another day, another fine afternoon, or another run. We pad through the fall forests with the leaves crunching underfoot on the dry trail, the underbrush and weeds spent and brown hanging with their last offering of seeds to be blown on the wind to settle another generation. Only the wild asters weighed down by their purple froth brighten the trail. The bees harry them with suicidal intensity and lack of humor that is to be avoided by the cautious runner. We run, man and dog, weaving through the trees with the sharp afternoon sun lancing through at us from an acute angle like a photographer's darkroom light. The motes of dust swirling in our mists and settling in our wake. The tang of wild grapes bite at the air and brings a smile to my heart. The apple trees in the orchard hang thick with fruit. Man and dog, brothers on the road and the trail. But he still gets along fairly well for an 80-year-old. Like all of us, he thinks he can do more than he can. And he talks me into it, and then he regrets it the next day. With the cool weather, he feels a need to get out and play and move. 
What I often hear when I check in from the road is, your dog is crazy. It's been a long autumn. I've traveled every week that I can remember. I'm doing okay. I'm getting my runs in for the most part and feeling fairly strong. I started to play with some speed work, and I'll talk about that a bit today. You can't just throw the switch. You have to build into the speed work when you've been away from it for a while. I've got an interview, a long chat with Jeff Smith today. Jeff won the 1984 and the 1985 Boston Marathon. And if you know about the history of the race, you may know that these were hard times for the Boston Marathon. It was founded by the Boston Athletic Association in 1896 as an amateur race. The prize was always a simple olive wreath, and it was a serious race for serious runners, and serious runners were thought to be the amateurs who ran for the love of the race. And Jeff was the last person to win the Boston Marathon before there was prize money, and he did it for love. The pressure of other big city races offering prize money threatened to relegate Boston to a quaint artifact of the 19th century, and a local financial institution stepped in and kept the race alive as they transitioned to a a, a new age, a new prize money structure. I didn't know Jeff was living locally until I got a tweet from him over the summer asking me to retweet one of his races. This chat gave me a chance to talk about what is for me the golden age of U.S. marathoning. And I'll also chat a bit about the power of self-awareness. I've been feeling a bit pressed these last few weeks with the level of travel and amount of stuff I'm trying to do. I'm also thinking of mortality as I see my my uh, my running partner struggle with age. This time of year is a bit of a whirlwind for us all. The leisure of the summer passes abruptly into the intensity of the school year. Work gets crazy, personal commitments pile up, people get overtired, the kids bring home the first good crop of viruses to mix into the social fray, and so we find ourselves in October, tired and sick and bubbling with stress. We have strategies to cope, but our armor gets dinged from the continuous hits. The car needs work, the house needs repair, the kids need new equipment and a ride to practice. We feel out of control and driven mad, losing that grip we thought we had on life. But, my friends, you're not alone. Don't let circumstance drive you crazy. There is nothing in the environment that you can't choose to live with and work with and, yes, even enjoy. Just take that time to close your eyes and take one long, deep breath. Exhale the stress and smile at the next person you see. They may need it more than you do. On with the show. It's when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Easing into speed work, making the unapproachable approachable. When you first start speed work at the track, it's going to feel very foreign to you. If you've never done it before, your legs and body won't know what to do. You have to ease into it and not lose hope. Like everything else, it takes time for your body to figure it out. And it never gets easy. That's not the point. It gets manageable and known. This past week, I made my way down to my local track where I have been doing speed work for 20 plus years. And this was a different type of adventure. 
due to some limitations, I haven't been able to do speed work for more than a year. And when I say speed work, I mean running faster than is comfortable for some distance or time. In my case, I'm usually referring to 1600s at the track. Here's the thing. I haven't tried to run fast or faster or fast for me for long enough that I didn't really know what to expect. Before the physiological challenges of the last couple of years, I knew about where I was. I knew about what I was capable of. And I won't bore you with paces because what is a pace for me is for me. And what is a pace for you is for you. And anytime I start calling out specific paces or race times, I'm bound to make someone sneer with derision or scowl with inadequacy. For the race marathon times I was running before a bout of physical decrepitude knocked me sideways, I know what speed and tempo paces should be for me. And I'll give you an easy rule of thumb. Take your goal marathon race pace and subtract a minute and 30 seconds from it. That's what you can aspire to run a 1600 in on your local track as your speed work. Do the same math and subtract a minute from your goal race pace, and that's your target tempo pace. For purely academic purposes, let's say your goal pace is 8 minutes a mile for a 330 marathon try. A good target for you will be to be able to run a 1600 in 6 minutes and 30 seconds for speed and a 1600 in 7 minutes flat for tempo. And I'm not going to go into my theories on speed work and 1600s here and why it's essential if you want to race faster, but I've written scads of words of that on my website. What I want to focus on here is how to ease into that speed work. And for me, coming back into it after a few years was like almost like starting from scratch. Almost. And I was able to notice things as I was doing it that may be useful to you. If you've never done it, these paces may seem absurdly fast. And frankly, I don't know what you're capable of, but I'll give you some steps to get you as close as you can. First, expect it to take some time. Expect it to take at least three weeks for your body to figure out the speed work. The mechanics are different. The muscles being used are different. Like when you started running, you have to give your machine a chance to adapt. Think of it as an experiment. Think of it as a learning experience. Think of it as play. Start by warming up well. That means run at least four laps of that track or 10 minutes before you do anything else. Run your warm-up at an easy pace, have patience, then stop and stretch. Commit to a good, deep stretching routine after you warm-up and before your workout. Calves, Achilles, hamstrings, quadriceps, hips, abductors, glutes, maybe your ITB, whatever problem areas you have, stretch those. And take your time and relax into these stretches. Don't do them for 10 seconds. Hold them for a minute. and re- Let your muscles relax and stop stop. Uh, fighting the stretch. And then start on the track with a couple laps of speed drills. And you can see my post on speed drills or look on YouTube, just search for speed work drills and you'll find some. I like to use butt kicks, high skipping, bounding, striders, backwards and sideways running drills. And these 
are good because they'll start to wake up those fast twitch muscle fibers and warm up those different bits that are needed for speed for that different mechanics. Don't start with the 1600. Start with a 400. That's once around the track. And do a set of four or five 400s at your target pace the first time out. And focus on form and stride. Notice how your body reacts to speed. Is your stride length longer? Is your form changing? Are you leaning more forward onto the balls of your feet? And keep moving after you're done that 400. Run through the finish and then jog another lap to cool down. And when you're back to your starting place, you can stop and stretch a little bit. Evaluate how it felt. Get a drink from your bottle. And when your heart rate has settled down, ease into the next 400 and do it all over again. The point of these is not so much training and conditioning as it is learning what speed feels like and how to hold that pace. The key decision point in in any of these is not whether you're tired or your legs hurt. The key decision point is when your form breaks. If you feel your form break, that's when you stop. The key is to learn the pace and form, and you can't do that if your form breaks. Even if you could gut it out, you don't want to. When you've completed these four or five 400s, run four laps to cool down, stretch again. We all have the tendency to skip stretching. So give yourself the gift of stretching here because it will make everything else so much easier and pain-free. If you wait until something hurts, it's probably too late. This may be a short workout for you, but with all the drills and recovery laps, it will round up to around five miles. And notice how you feel that night. Notice how you feel the next day. Notice how your body feels, how your legs feel. That'll give you some indication of of how different it is, speed work. And do two sessions per week, separated by either a rest day or an easy day or a recovery run. The second session should be a tempo session. The protocol is the same, but since you are running a bit slower, you can try for 800s instead of 400s and see if you can do four of those. And repeat this the second week, but try to increase those those 400s to 800s for speed, and then to 1,200s for the tempo. And repeat this for the third week, but see if you can get up to the 1,600s. You can be off the target pace by plus or minus 5 seconds as long as your form doesn't break and you're consistent. What you'll find is that either your legs or your lungs will go first. If you've been running for a while but have not done speed work, you'll find that your legs go before your lungs. This is one of the things that you want to learn. Why are you unable to hold the pace? Why are you slowing down? Is it your heart and lungs or is it your legs? And this information will tell you what you need to work on. These may trade places as you get into shape and your body learns the speed. At my first speed work session last week, I found I could not hold the pace for the second 1600 at speed and my form started to break. So I pulled up at the 1200 mark. But I also discovered that my lungs and heart were okay. My fitness level is pretty good with the effort. But my legs have to come around. And I've given myself a three-week trial to see if I can ease into speed and tempo. Just throwing in a couple of speed works, you know, maybe one session or two sessions a week. 
and to see what paces are achievable and what paces are aspirational, right? Sort of set that market what it is for my current age and <laughs> fitness level. In the days after my speedwork session, I ran my normal five-ish mile home road loop that I have run so many hundreds of times over the last 20 years. And I baselined it before the speed session and then after. And after the speed session, I felt light and strong. And I ran three to four minutes faster than the baseline without even trying. And that's the why. You do, do your speed work to make the rest of your runs easier. It's like running with weights and then putting the weights down. You get faster. If you're speed work curious, give yourself three weeks and ease into it. Do it as an experiment. Do it as a learning exercise. If you find that your body responds, you can then build a training plan around uh, rigorous and consistent speed work to take many minutes off your race times of any distance. And now for today's featured interview. Are you there, Jeff? Yeah, I'm there. So um, I'm super excited, thrilled to be talking to you because I've uh, you know I've heard your name for you know 30 years now, right? In the in the marathoning world, and so uh, why don't you give us give us the uh, the 200 words on uh, who you are and uh, what you're famous for? My name's Jeff Smith. I'm a two-time Boston Marathon champion. I'm a two-time Olympian. I'm a little bit on the wrong side of 50. I enjoy running uh, in a different way right now. When I think back to 1984, 1985, you, where you won the back-to-back uh, Bostons, that was really a, a transition point for the Boston Marathon, right? I mean, yeah, they were they were just going from being sort of this local club race to being the big time at that point, right? And that was right before all the Africans came in, all the money came in. So you won Boston in sort of the last two years before Boston became like this this sort of big blown up corporate thing, right? Yes, but you've got to retrace what Boston was. Even before the money come in, Boston was still the big race. And people still came in to run it from all over the world. You know, you had Ron Hill coming in. I mean, you had some fantastic runners before the prize money come in. You know, Alberta won it before prize money. Greg Meyer won it before prize money. You know, there were some big, big names winning Boston. So it was always the race that everybody wanted to win. The prize money just brought it into the 21st century. Yeah. So back in the, the 80s, I think it was a little bit different, the, the running, the way you guys prepared and the way you guys raced. I mean, it's just a, do you see it? I mean, you talk to the current elites. Do you see a lot of difference in what you guys did and what they do today? You know, what's different? What's the same? I don't think there's too much difference. I mean, you know, you've got to go out and you've got to run. And, like, you know, you look at the races, they're not running that much faster. You know, like yesterday in downtown Providence, they weren't running any faster than, than we ran 30 years ago, 25 years ago. You know, there's one or two guys that are popping really fast times. But, you know, most of the races are not not super, super fast. Yeah, if you look at sort of, you know, you and Dixon and Bill, you know, you're running like 207 to 211. Even your slow one there, the 214, that's a pretty fast yeah. marathon, right? Yeah. I mean, that'd still get me in the top 15 at Boston. Right. 
When I sort of read and research what you guys were doing, though, it seemed like the you're putting in a lot of sort of very high mileage weeks, you know, 120 miles, and then with a lot of speed work, too. Like, the guys brought a lot of that speed work with them from the, the track world, you know? Yeah, I, you know, the, it, it depended on, on the runners. I mean, you know, I always look at them, and there was a lot of us, and we all had our own methods. The only thing that we had in common was that we were consistent and we believed in it and we loved it. I ran about 105 miles a week. Sometimes I'd pop up to about 115. But generally it was around, you know, around about that 100 mile a week. And I did like to run fast. You know, I did do a lot of speed work. But my uh, friend and runner there from Providence College who got the silver medal, John Tracy, he liked to run a little bit slower. Uh, He's still done the speed work. I don't think he'd done it as intensely as I did, but, you know, it, it, everything works. It's just a matter of preference and, you know, who you're listening to at, the, at a certain point in time. You know, to Steve Jones trained similar to me. You know, we'd, we'd done hard work. We'd like to run hard. But the biggest difference is, I think, between the athletes today and my era is we ran for love, pure love, you know. Uh, yeah. And we, we would jump into races all the time. You don't see this happening anymore. You know, where you'll turn around and boom, there'll be a few guys there hammering it out for fun. Right. Yeah, The uh, that's something that's, that it, you're right, that's a lot different, right? So you never see one of the elites now doing four or five or six marathons in a year or, you know, other. Oh, we never done that. Right? I mean, like we'd, we'd jump into road races at a 10K. Yeah, yeah. We hammered ourselves just a training run. Right. But neither of us wanted to lose. Yeah. But we'd go out and we'd have fun and we'd we'd hammer ourselves and get on with it the next day. Going back to what you said, you sort of had to do it for love because there wasn't really a profession of sorts, right? Well, I was a firefighter in uh, in, in Liverpool and running. So I was doing shift work and racing on my days off. That was my background, you know. I worked for a living and I ran for fun. And you do look- 56 hours a week and then jump into road races or you do a... A night shift, go home, have a couple of hours sleep, and then go to a race. Yeah. And I was still running 28 flat for uh, 10,000 meters. So it must have been tough, though, to try to work in, you know, those high-mileage weeks around any kind of job, right? No, I mean, it's what you did. You know, you, you adapted your lifestyle to what you wanted to do. Going out for a run, it meant, you know, just... Every uh, day you'd, you'd come home from work, you'd put your, your kid on and you'd go out and do your run. And in the morning you get up early and go out for a run before you went to work. I had a, a great routine and managed to, to train hard and have fun. And be pretty successful too. Yeah, but, but you know, the successful part would become because I, I was naturally gifted. But you know, the nice thing about running is that we're all naturally gifted. It's just at different different uh, levels on the on the uh, on the scale. You know, everybody can improve. We we can't all run sub four minutes for a mile, but we can all go out and get faster. You know, I was just blessed with that ability to run fast and have lots of energy to make it work. So, what are you doing now, Jeff? Right now, I'm I'm working as a race director. Uh, we're putting on CBS race. I was the assistant there helping uh, Charlie Brigi. He's the race director. We have a race coming up in Worcester on October the 11th, the Oktoberfest 5K on Shrewsbury Street, and that's OF5K.com. That's going to be a fantastic 5K on the parade route. 
Charlie has a few Christmas races in Providence. There's Jingle Bell Run and his run through the Ripter Tunnel, the Monster Dash. And I have a big race in New Bedford that I'd love people to come and help me with. It's been my uh, signature race. Uh, I'm competing with guys from Liverpool that put on a race, a Santa race in Liverpool. So I, I've got to have more people. More, San, more people dressed up as Santa than uh, Liverpool. But I've got the tall order because they've got 10,000 people. Oh, is, what, is the, what is the race in New Bedford? It's called the uh, New Bedford Santa Run. And it's nbsantarun.com. But the idea of it is we supply everybody with a Santa suit. This year, everybody's going to get a, a Santa medal at the end. But the goal is to get as many people dressed up in Santa suits and compete with cities all over the world to see which city can get the most Santas and ultimately break the uh, Guinness Book of World Records for number of people in Santa suits. I've had up to 1,700 people doing it, and this is my fifth year of uh, the Santa run. So I'd love yeah. to get a record field and take the New England record back as a a guy up in Manchester uh, decided to put one on, and he took the record off me. So that would be nice. What does a Santa suit look like, Jeff, that you're, uh, that you're running in? It's a full Santa suit. It's the pants, the jacket, a belt, a beard, and a hat. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it's quite a scene to see 1,600 to 2,000 Santas running down the street. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great holiday feeling. And New Bedford is, is quite the city. I mean, they dress the city up unbelievably. It's like going back in time, the way they've decorated the, uh, the cobblestone streets. It's an opportunity to come down and shop in all the little uh, boutiques. There's a lot of artists that have shops there selling unique gifts. So it's a great, great way to come down. And if you haven't been there, it's great to come in and see the city itself, you know, the Whalen Museum, the the Oceanarium. I mean, there's, there's, there's a ton of things to do. Yeah, so was New Bedford uh, the half marathon around back in the 80s when you were running hard? I'm the, the, uh, the course record spring? holder. I'm the, cor- the course, course record, record holder. holder. I guess yes. it was around that. It was as big as Falmouth back then. Right, yeah. The story I always tell people is, is going to that race and like the top 100 finishers are sub six. You know, it's it's such a competitive race. And it used to be even more competitive uh, back back in the eight in when I won it in eighty eighty six, I think eighty five, eighty six. The top ten were all inside of about sixty five minutes. Wow! I mean, we had Paul Cummins, Mark Kirp, Greg Meyer, myself, a guy called Dave Edge, a uh, couple of Kenyans. I mean, it was. It was a loaded field back then. Yeah, I mean, it still is. I mean, yeah, they also had Ingrid Christensen, Rosa Moda. I mean, yep. they had some unbelievable t- top-class women and men competing in New Bedford. And could, can you run faster on that course? The new course, it's a new course now. The new course is definitely a, a sub-60 course. Do you think the new course is faster? Oh, without a doubt. The old course that we ran on went into the fort and had about 10 tens. And we took a right down Union Street and a left on, on, onto a Pleasant to the finish. Or was it Purchase? Purchase. Well, it's, there's, you know, it's, I always like that course, the new course, because it's, um, it's got that long downhill section. Yeah. 
well, in the beginning. Well, it's a short, sharp down, downhill. All right, so it's got a sort of a long, comfortable downhill, but then you turn the corner and you're right into a headwind usually. Oh, okay. For that, that, that fiddle on the ocean is typically a pretty yep. strong headwind. And then right at the finish, it slams you into that hill when you get back into the city. So the last, yep. you know, half mile is sort of uphill. It's not tremendously difficult, but you have to sort of strategize what you're going to do where, right? Yeah, I mean, I call it the mini Boston. If you want to you wanna experience a race that's very similar in, in makeup to Boston, the New Bedford is, is the one to do. You know, you've got the rolling downhill to three miles. Then you've got the uphill to three and a half miles and then you get onto Rockdale Ave and it's one rocket shot to uh, 11 miles and then you've got 11 miles up the hill up county yep. Yep. and then you've yep. got the beautiful downhill finish to the, to uh, from 12 miles to the finish yep. with that sort of tight corner down into the city there yep. Yep. run that race many times and like I said, it's always an elite field, and I like that because it sort of represents the area. You know, New England's always yeah. had such a strong, strong running scene of people, yeah. like you say, who just love the sport, just club runners that love the sport. Yeah, well, I, I, and I put on three half marathons as well in the spring. So for all those people that don't get into Boston and, and want want to do something, we have one in April in Blackstone Valley, uh, Pawtucket right on the bike pass and that's bvhalf.com and then we have one in Ju- June in Worcester uh, it's, it's Father's Day and that's runworcester.com and then we have one in July which is a, a music fest eight bands along the course you'll get to listen to them multiple times and that's nbhalf.com that's one of the things that's really changed since when I started running back in in the 80s, you know, there weren't that many races, right? Yeah, there's just lots of races now. And everybody knew which races were where. You know, you knew there was Falmouth, you knew there was New Bedford, you knew there was Boston. But outside of that, you know, there, nowadays there's there's five races every weekend, right? Especially in the fall and the yeah. spring. Yeah. Yesterday, CVS, I mean, I don't understand. Like anybody that wants, that considers himself a good runner, you know, all these guys that are running 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 minutes, they should have all been at Providence to, to to stand alongside the elite and, you know, see what it feels like to uh, to go out in a fast race. You know, that would be my goal, you know. When I was running, I always wanted to be where the good guys were. Well, I was one of them. That, that's besides the point. <laughs> but I wanted I wanted to race them, you know. Yeah, yeah. Go out, winning, go out winning a little years. local road race. Nah, I want to win a race where there's somebody to beat. Or I want to be in that race. It's a great so feeling to, to to race. So the reason we have all these races today is because we have all these runners, right? We've got this um, sort of big bulge of um, people who are taking on running as a a recreational sport, um, which we didn't have before, right? I mean. Yes, back you're in the right. '80s, people people just thought you were nuts if you were out running every day. Um, yes, they did. But what what's what's different about today's runner versus you know the runner 30 years ago? Today's runner is is more into just going out and enjoying 
enjoying running. You know, it's not about going out and uh, winning. It's about going out, having a social time, feeling good, having a great day out. And, you know, they're all, they're all wanna run ma- they all want to run marathons and half marathons. You know, it's, it seems like everybody that starts running wants to run the marathon. Uh, right. Whereas when I started running, I wanted to run fast and I wanted to, I wanted to run short. You know, five Short, k's, like yeah, five k's, half, you know, three k on the track, and you know, there, there used to be more ten k's. Now it's all five k's, right? Because it seems seems like the current runners don't really want to run a ten k. You know, I found the same thing with my race uh, that I'm the race director of. The ten k, it's the same people, but it's it's not growing, right? What's really growing is yeah. the five k. Five k's and half marathons. Yeah, five Ks and half marathons. And I tell people this and I'm not sure they believe me, but you know, when we started, there weren't a whole lot, lot of um well there there was one or two half marathons, but it really wasn't nope. a thing. Yeah. Yeah, there was New Bedford, right? Um and that was basically a tune up for Boston, so you get to see the competition. And then the only five Ks yeah. were really were were in track events. They weren't really you know, you'd get ten Ks and five milers, right? Yeah. Well, it was 10K, 8K. I mean, I tried last year. Do you remember a race called uh, the Long Run in Horseneck Beach? No. I mean, that was around in the 80s and 90s. And it was a beautiful race at Horseneck. Flat, through the sand hills, very little traffic. And it was always the first Sunday after Labor Day. And they would have at least six, 700 people running in the race back in the 80s. And I finished third one year in 22.50. So, I mean, like, you had unbelievable feels there. And they were just there for the, because it was a great great day out. It was a great course. And it was an opportunity to to, uh, prep for the uh, fall. Yeah. See exactly where you are coming out of the summer. Yeah. And it was also a day to go to the beach. (laughs) No, I remember a lot of pub races, um, pub five milers. Yeah, yeah, so there, there's something about running in pubs. Yeah. Um, I remember a lot of the pubs, especially in the cities like New Bedford or Lowell or any of those older sort of mill cities, there'd yeah. be pub races and there'd be five milers. Yeah. And, and like you said, the same guys would show up every, you know, every weekend or every couple of weeks to run these races hard. You know, they'd do yeah. a lot of five milers and 10Ks. I don't think you see that anymore. You know, people, people have target races and they won't race, you know, other than the target race. Oh, you know, I, there's a lot of people run multiple races every week. You know, I, I'm at races pretty much every weekend, talking to people, trying to get people to come to New Bedford to run my Santa run. I would talk to the same people uh, Saturday and Sunday, uh, multiple weeks, you know, and I'd, I'd, go, I'd be traveling, Taunton, Plymouth, Providence, Little Compton, uh, Warren. You know, I mean, wherever I went, I'd, I'd see generally see several people that had already seen the the week before or the day before. Yeah. Do you know uh, Dave Dunham? Yeah. Yeah. So Dave used to do this thing back in the, in the nineties where he'd go down and run the James Joyce ramble. Yeah. And you know, he'd do real well. Then he'd jump in the car and come up to Groton and race the, uh, the Groton 10 K. And he, you know, he'd either, he'd either win or place in both of them. He held the course record yeah. for the uh, Groton 10 K for a while. 
So well, I mean, I, <laughs> example, I remember the Fourth of July back in oh, about '85. I live. I just bought a house in Freetown, and my buddy Charlie phoned me up and said he was going to run a race in uh, Somerset. I said, "That's that's like five minutes from my house." I said, "You're coming to my back door to 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 run a race?" I said, "Okay, I'll see you there." So I went down. I ran 23 and a half minutes in Somerset. Then we both jumped in our cars and drove to Mattapoisett and ran the Mattapoisett race at 10 o'clock. So we ran at 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock. <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it was what we did back then. You know, right. we, we wanted to race. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, and I see people doing that sort of, you know, doing the uh, back-to-back marathons and stuff, but they're not racing them. They're just kind of showing up and, and running them, right? And I think that's the big difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, everybody's talking about, you know, running a, a, ra- a marathon every week. And so, uh, I've done that every week for, for God, almost 20 years. I ran 20 miles every, almost every single week. Yeah. You know, and, and I'd be running close to five-minute mile pace for, uh, uh, for a bunch of them. Yeah, puts it in perspective, doesn't it? And you must have had a great, um, a great crew to train with locally back then. Did you guys? Yeah, there was a great crew, run? but I was pretty much just a, a loner. You know, okay. I like to train. Uh, like, you know, I'd have guys come over to my house and we go out for long runs. Uh, Don Fredrickson, uh, Paul Paul Coogan. But you know, the majority of the runs you do alone. You know, and I'd. I'd always go to the track. I'd go down to PC and use the track of the morning, like at 7 o'clock in the morning before anybody got there, and do my yeah. track workouts at 7 in the morning. So so what do you see What do you see for the, the long-distance running, the marathon world, you know, for the next 10, 20 years? Where do you see it going? What do you think the, the big trends are? I mean, I don't think there's any big trends. I think, you know, it, we've just had running in general is... is is going through a transition, you know. Uh, it's not the same sport as it was 30 years ago. We've got a new president in Sebastian Coe of so, the IAAF. Yeah. And, you know, he's got his, his work cut out to clean the sport up. You know, unfortunately, we're in a uh, in a time and era where question marks are put, a, put against everybody. You know, yeah. I think every generation has a question mark against it because you're running a little bit faster. But I think the question marks are a little bit bigger today than they were 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they're, they're slowly going to get faster. That's that's the name of the game. You think we'll see somebody crack a, uh, a three-hour marathon in your lifetime and mine? Two hours? I think that the the kids that Sorry, are... two hours. The kids that... The kids that can break two hours are most probably being born now. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, 30 years ago, I was running 61 and change for the half marathon. And people people were having that same conversation. Do you think they'll ever break one hour for the uh, the half? And it's been broken. Yeah. So when you look at a, a two-hour versus a 2.03, it doesn't seem like a lot of time. But... Uh, that you know, it's a big jump. We'll see, it but it's it's amazing because the the way these guys go after marathons now is just uh, they they run it like like a 10k. You know, they're just all out for the whole the whole race. And it's just amazing that they're in that kind of fitness uh, to do that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I always look at it 
you run as fast as your mind will let you go. Yeah. Uh, we, when I was running, we were running to, to run 2.7. Yeah. You know, that was our goal. And these guys are now running for, you know, and each year it's, it's got a little bit faster. 2.6, 2.5, 2.4, 2.3. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and now, you know, if, if that's what you're training for, that's where you're going, that's where your, your running is going to take you. Right. Could all of the yeah. guys from my era have competed today? Without a doubt. There's no doubt in my mind that Steve Jones, uh, Rob DiCostello, Dixon, uh, Billy, we would have competed today, and we would have been yeah. very good. There's yeah. no doubt. Yeah, yep, yep, I believe that. I see it growing, and I mean, like, right now, high school kids are getting better. You know, there is more of an emphasis. I've seen high school cross-country teams and track teams are bigger than they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And the times are starting to come back again. You know, they sort of time slowed down, but now you've got good, good, good uh, high school programs uh, across the country. So, you know, sure. we, we, we should see a, a great, over the next 10 years, we, we, we could see some unbelievable running. Oh, I'm sure we from will. Some of the crops of high sure school we kids will. we have right now. Yeah, you're already seeing a couple uh, outstanding um, young runners right now, so I'm sure we you will. Yeah, Rhode Island is doing an unbelievable job, you know, uh, promoting uh, high school running. You know, the Downtown 5K supports the high school system, high school uh, running programs Yep. every year, you know, for the last 20 years. So hi- Rhode Island is, is doing a really great job, and there's some great runners coming out of Rhode Island right now. Yep, and uh, I think the same's true for uh, for Maine. There's a lot of good runners coming out of Maine. Yeah, uh, we'll have to get we'll have to get Massachusetts back into it. But uh, yeah, New New England's always been a bit of a hotbed, and I like yeah. that because because uh, it, it makes it easier when you know everybody's on the same page. So yeah. um, all right, I'll let I'll let you get back to work. Sounds like you're you're tired from managing your race this weekend, huh? I didn't get to run uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so I, I've already been out and ran for 45 minutes. So how uh, how are the uh, you're, you're you're doing that on you're doing that on new hips, right? Yeah, I have two new hips. So how how is that for the running? You find you can you can function okay with the with the hips? Well, they they function better than the ones I had. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you know, there's no pain. There's I don't even know they're there. They feel great. And, you know, that's as long as I can go out and enjoy it. I mean, that's all I'm, I'm interested in. I've, I've ruled out that I want to run fast. You know, the ego part of it. Yeah. Know, there is a little bit of ego always there. You know, oh, I can do this. I can do that. But, you know, I've, I've the last 12 months, I've really uh, buckled myself down to just enjoying running. And I don't use a watch. I don't. I don't have a, a time, distance. I mean, I just go out and I run. It yeah. could be thirty minutes. It could be thirty-five minutes. You know, when I when I feel like I want to come home, I come home. But it's nothing better than being out, feeling the wind, sure. and the coolness. This morning, I had to put my uh, I put my sweat suit, sweatpants on and a, and a sweatshirt, and that those cool cool mornings are, are back. I love those cool mornings in the fall. Yeah, I, mean, I was 
Well, let's not talk about fall right now. <laughs> let's, let's, let's hold on to the summer for another another month. Uh, no, it's definitely winter's coming. You got to get your uh, shovels. Uh, uh, we'll be in it. In a couple of weeks, we'll be in it. No, it's not going to happen. Well, pray, pray, pray it's not the same as last year. Hopefully, hopefully so. it won't be so bad because I'm I'm going to try and get a uh, get a hard training cycle in this winter and. Uh, if I can't get to the track, that makes my life more difficult. So how so, many people listen to your podcast? I'm guessing somewhere around 9,000 downloads a show. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I know a couple hundred of these people. The other the other 8,500, I don't know who they are. But I hope they're enjoying it. Well, <laughs> I hope so. So, And if they are, come and help me out. I've got to get a, a lot of people down here in New Bedford so I can go over dress. to Liverpool and not get my nose rubbed in it. The, the dress like yeah. Santa, and you get and you get a free Santa suit. Yeah, we provide the Santa suit. You're going to get a medal. It's going to be chip timed. It's flat. It's going to be a fantastic course. So, so I'll tell you tell you a story. One of the, one of the guys I trained with, pretty fast guy. There was going to be a local Santa run, right? And he said, "Oh, yeah. I'll go down here because." There's a special prize if you dress like Santa and you're the first Santa across the finish line, you win. He goes, I'll go down here and I'll dress like Santa because I'll be able to win because nobody else will do that. And he got there and it was, you know, he came in like fifth of the Santas, Santas because of uh, all the other, you know, the field was so strong with guys dressed like Santa in this little 5K, little local 5K. <laughs> I'll let you go. Thank you very much. Appreciate everything. No problem. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The power of self-awareness. So we all have blind spots, all of us. Many times these blind spots, ironically, are caused by our strengths. What can we do to find and address these blind spots so that we can continue to grow as individuals. And the key may lie in self-awareness. The journey of life does end at a specific destination. But while we're still active in this world, we can continue to grow and change and learn. This is where a good self-awareness project comes in. So, do you know yourself? Have you taken time to look inward? Or have you, like most of us, lived your life looking for the silver bullets external to yourself. What do we mean by self-awareness? We mean the ability to see yourself, your emotion, your strengths, your actions and reactions from a third-party perspective, to see them with a learned detachment that allows you to deconstruct the process, a perspective that allows you to walk backwards from the actions and reactions and emotions into the causations. This self-awareness will allow you to stop fighting a defensive battle against the rest of the world. Self-awareness will allow you to instead take positive steps to influence the outcomes you need and want. I've been working on this self-awareness project for a couple months now, without really calling it that because I didn't have the self-awareness to do so. It starts with some simple questions. Why do you act the way you do? What is your mode of operation? 
What actions and thoughts have made you successful throughout your life and why? And do they still make you successful? What would happen if you let go of your traditional approaches? How are those approaches holding you back? What bounty could come into your life if you were able to set all that baggage down and make room for that bounty? And when I asked this this series of questions of myself, I discovered that what has always made me successful was to be the smartest person in the room. And I had to make sure everyone knew I was this guy who knew more, did more, and intellectually comprehended more. I spent a lot of energy on this. It made me successful. Employers, employees, partners, they want to work with me. They want me to work with them because I can be counted on. But what was I giving up by using the same strategy over and over? What good things could come into my life if I laid that strategy aside? And the clear, there's clear drawbacks. The clear drawback to having to be the smartest person in the room is that it keeps you from taking risks in areas that you're not an expert in. And you can't do things that don't work out because that runs counter to the self-image you've built. You shy away from hard things. You shy away from people who are actually smarter than you and who could make you very successful. Needing to be the smartest person in the room turns you into an individual contributor. Being an individual contributor doesn't scale. You can't win the truly big prizes unless you can leverage a team of people. It creates a limiting and fixed mindset. So how does this manifest, and how can you set it down? Well, it manifests when you interact with people. At least that's what I've been noticing recently. You don't listen. You look for opportunities to say something smarter. You look for opportunities to one-up the conversation like it's some sort of contest. And you know what? I don't need to prove that I'm the smartest person in the room. I don't need to prove that I have the experience and brains and the competence. They already know that, or they'll realize it in due time as we interact. Acting this way, what does this do? At best, it convinces the person that you are quite bright and accomplished and They may even trust you. You may even be able to leverage that into a leadership role. But at worst, it's a very inauthentic way of interacting that does not allow the other party to come into your life. You have essentially put up a sign at the door that says, we can be friends or business partners as long as you admit I'm smarter than you. So how do you do it differently? How do you interact and show off your light but not overwhelm like you're trying to prove something? And for this, I have the oldest, perhaps the oldest advice in the world. You just have to be yourself. But you have to be the best authentic version of yourself, your higher self. Being yourself doesn't mean showing up in sweatpants and picking your nose like you might do at home. Being yourself means putting that needy crap aside and looking deeply into another person's eyes and asking questions that you are truly interested in hearing the answers to. And one of my favorite questions is, what are you passionate about? And here's another great question. How can I be useful to this person? Being yourself doesn't mean demurring or hiding your light. It means telling your good stories with an enthusiasm and good humor that demonstrates the passion you have 
for the things in your career and your family and your life. And when you let your higher self manifest in this way, it drains all the stress out of the interaction. Instead of being a contest, it becomes a warm dance. And when you relax into the conversation in an authentic way, it allows you to access better parts of your brain. Instead of the stress chemicals blotting everything out in a haze of interaction, you are able to bring your third-party detachment to the fore and watch the interaction and learn from it. Amazingly enough, you'll remember the names of the people and their stories easily, and they'll remember yours as well. That is the potential power of self-awareness. By asking the questions that start with why, you can find ways to break through the habits and strategies that have held you back your whole life. And more than 2,000 years ago, Plato put the words into Socrates' mouth. Know thyself. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Are you feeling faster? Are you feeling more self-aware? Feeling like you have made it to the end of episode 4-322? Yes, you have. If you're in the New England area, consider Jeff's Santa run. That sounds like a lot of fun. And you get a free Santa suit. And believe it or not, we had our first Groton Road Race meeting. April is just around the corner. It'll be our 25th anniversary race. Wow. And this old dog has run every single one. But it's my swan song race, too. I'll be passing the baton over to another race director. And I've learned a lot from my tenure. I'm grateful for the tribe that kept this race a grand and glorious spring ritual for my old hometown. I'm testing myself with a bit of some speed work, but I feel strong. I think my plan of a January qualification race with the Groton Marathon as a last long run is a pretty good idea. (laughs) Good as any I've had, right? Uh, Who knows what will change between then and now. I'd love to get some of you out to uh, run the Groton Marathon with me. And this is a self-supported 26.2-mile run that we invented for December because there weren't any good races around the holidays, and we wanted to get a marathon in. So let let me think some more on that. I'd prefer not to have to spend any money on it, but maybe I can whack up a web page and make it official enough to have it recognized by the maniacs or something. I'll probably run Boston. I'm not qualified, but these things have a way of working out for me. If I get the privilege of running it again this year, and God help me, I can't even remember how many I've run, I'm going to use my my talents to do something really big for charity and the community and the sport. So I'm thinking on that as well. The more I work through my own self-awareness process, the more I find myself thinking that I've been playing a small game. And I know people see me from the outside and maybe see untapped intellect and wonder why I haven't done more. At least that's what I wonder about myself. And I think that we all can do more than we think. I read a book by fellow runner Bill Dawes this week, and his narrative is similar to my own and similar to so many others, and maybe even yours. And the narrative is that we are muddling along with our lives, doing okay, and somehow, somewhere, sometime, we find 
running or endurance sports, and it catches us by surprise. It catches us by the shirt collar and slaps us in the face and stares deeply into our souls and says, you are capable of more than you think. And I think you are capable of more than you think. I'm beginning to know that I am. And I'm not talking about running a marathon. I'm talking about finding something in your life that you don't think you can do and going after it with ferocity and hard work and not being afraid to fail and not being afraid to succeed and going into that thing with only one object to learn about yourself and what you're capable of. And maybe you'll be surprised and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And what you'll find is that either your lungs or your lungs will... (laughs) 